And I'm going to pick up the story in verse 24. So they, they, they've just had the Last Supper with Jesus. They don't realize it's the Last Supper yet. They don't know that he's going to be crucified the next day. And they're arguing with each other, and they're looking at each other accusationally. And then we pick up the story in verse 24 of Luke, chapter 22. A dispute arose among them. A dispute arose among them. Now, how many of you can relate to the idea of a dispute arising among you? If you have children in your house, this happens. I mean, some days I could end the day telling the story and say, a dispute arose among them. (laughs) Fortunately, they all survived, and so did I. But we're human, and when we look at the apostles, we realize they they did the same things we do. They started to dispute amongst themselves. We saw lots of that the last couple years. Accusation, frustration, who betrayed who, who's right, disputing going on in the body of Christ. Disputes arise out of tension and anxiety. These guys are expecting Jesus to take the throne and establish his kingdom. They're thinking of it in a much more literal way than Jesus is talking. A dispute arose among them. And what was it about? Which one of them was regarded as the greatest? Which one of us is right? Which one of us has the best perspective? Which one of us is most loved by Jesus? So when he establishes his kingdom, I'm going to be the governor of Galilee. I'm going to be a governor of Jerusalem. I'm going to have this position or that position. I'll be the greatest. He'll appoint me to these important spots in his kingdom when he establishes it. So sometimes we stop and wonder, why are they arguing about who's going to be the greatest? You've got to think about the context that these guys are are arguing in and what they're arguing about. But then we put ourselves in those shoes and go, man, that's just like us. It's just like us. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. In other words, they're looking at the, the governmental systems around them and kind of how, we, how, how leadership works. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. <clears throat> Can I have your water, a swig of your water there, Jenny? Thank you. We interrupt this uh, service for an important public service announcement. Chair's thirsty. I don't want to cough all morning into the microphone. Okay, back on track. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? He's looking at worldly thinking, humanistic thinking. The greatest is the one who reclines at the table while everyone else serves. The powerful one gets to sit and the lowly people serve. But then Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. So we have valuable lessons about being a servant leader. The idea within the church and within the, in the kingdom of God is that authority isn't something to be pounded on people. We do have authority. We do have order. We need to respect those things. But we need to understand that the real heart of the matter is to serve one another. Not argue about who's going to be the greatest. Not argue about who's going to betray who and who's in the right. But to serve one another. To humble ourselves. To live in a humble way. You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Okay, again, he's using this language, 
You've got to think about the mindset that these guys are in. You've been with me through all of this. So just like God's assigned to me a kingdom, I'm going to assign to you. The Father assigned me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, you're going to make me a judge. Ah. Think about what this would do for you. Like we just blow over these details in the scripture, but we've got to stop and really soak in what is the circumstances here? What's going on with these, these guys? We just kind of go, oh man, these guys are just such knuckleheads. But if we stop and think about it, no, they're, they're you and I. How do we think about ourselves? How do we perceive ourselves in his kingdom and our relationship with him? And indeed, we do believe that, that God has given, even in the next life, or however things turn out, these guys are going to have significant authority in his kingdom. But he wasn't talking about an earthly kingdom at that point in time. We believe that Jesus will return and he will rule and he will reign over all the nations someday. And then I want to get into the main part of the story. I say all of this and spent all of this time talking about this situation in order to build up to this moment between Peter and Jesus. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What? Satan has demanded to have you. So last supper, somebody's going to be betraying me, arguing about who's the greatest. You will be judges over Israel someday. But Peter, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, first of all, you need to understand that the word you in this situation is plural. Satan has demanded to have all of you. And we start to ask ourselves some questions. What in the world does this mean? How is it possible that Satan could have any right to demand anything? Now, we're treading into mysterious ground here. We have very little understanding, really, of the relationship between God and Satan. We know that Satan appeared before God and asked to do the same thing to Job. Didn't he? In the book of Job, he came before God and said, If you let me test Job, he'll fall. God says, okay, go ahead and test him. And in the same way, we can see that Satan is demanding that he have Peter and the other apostles. That he would sift them like wheat. You know, sometimes we, this really gets into a whole realm of theology that we could go down a black hole in. But I do want to skim some of the surface of these things. Really what he's asking for, he's like, giving, give me this idea, the idea of demanded that he have you. is like, give me the complete handling of Turn them over to me. That's a scary thought, isn't it? I demand to have them. Now, how could he have any right or position or authority? You mean Satan has to ask God for stuff? According to the Bible, he does. Which actually gets us into another kind of realm of thinking. I want to challenge something that, that we just have this tendency to automatically think. We, we, we fall into what's called dualism. Dualism is something in theology that's been around for a long time, but it's the idea that there's these equal and opposite good and evil, and they're against each other. And it's true there's good and evil, and it's true they're against each other, but they're not equal and opposite. They are not. In the end of all things, God is over everything. Why did he allow Satan to exist? Why did he create him? Why did he let man have the capability to sin? I don't know. Those are deep questions that we could talk about and talk circles around. And they're worth thinking about. 
But at the end of the day, we know that we live in a creation that rebelled against its maker. Every single one of us rebels against God. Every single one of us has sin in our lives. And when we do that, we give authorization to Satan in our lives. So when we open that door through sinful behavior, we are inviting an evil authority to have places in our lives. See, sin isn't just about a a rule of law or code of conduct. It's about life. And so when we participate in sin, when we willfully sin, when we ignore sin, we hide it, we don't ask forgiveness for it, we leave a foothold, as it's called. A place for Satan to have his a hold of our lives because he has actual authority in that place because we give it to him. And in the same way, when we obey God and line ourselves up with God, we're giving God authority in our lives. That's why we say we give our lives to Jesus. We get saved. We're born again. We repent. We're turning and we're going a different direction and we're inviting the authority of God into our lives. But as long as there's sin present, there's a certain amount of authority that our enemy has. Jesus called him the prince of this world. He said the prince of this world has come, but he has no claim on me. Why did he have no claim on Jesus? Because Jesus was without sin. But he had claim on Peter because Peter was sinful. And in some ways, he, he demands it. And Jesus' Jesus's response is great. He doesn't say, but I didn't let him. I won't let him. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I want to talk about this for a second. Do you know what the sifting of wheat is? Okay, in ancient times, you know, you grow wheat, and I don't know if... If you're, as you know, we go to the grocery store and we buy it already done, but how does it get there? Right? Where does milk come from? Well, wheat grows in the field and, and when they harvest the heads of it, they'd get a hard service and they would beat it with clubs and that's called sifting. So Satan says, I want to take Peter and put him on a hard service and beat him with a club. What is this? What is the analogy here? Sifting is a painful process where you're breaking the chaff off of the wheat. You're separating the, you're beating on something so that the thing that you don't want separates from the thing that you do want. How many of you know that life is like being sifted sometimes? How many of you feel like you got tied to a concrete floor and beaten by life? And we go, that's not fair. It's not right. It's not good. Satan wanted to do this. Now, this is interesting. Uh, I, I'm going to stretch your thinking a little bit, but sometimes I think a little bit about this. And is the idea that even Satan serves God's purposes in the end? What? When the challenges, even even when when you know Satan probably thought he won when Jesus went to the cross, and yet in all the evil that took place to put him on the cross, and yet it was serving God's purposes. And even in the trials and the tribulations of our lives, when we feel like we're being tied up and beaten by evil, God still has purpose. So do you know what they do with that wheat once it's been put on that hard surface and pounded? See, combines do this today. We could think of it like that. Satan wants to put you through a combine. That doesn't sound very pretty. But that's what happens. We, we, we get beaten on, and then what happens? They call it winnowing. And they take a winnowing fork, it's like a pitchfork, and they scoop it up, and they throw it in the air. 
and the wind blows and it blows the chaff. The chaff is the unusable part of the wheat. It blows the chaff away and the usable part of the wheat falls to the ground. We see that in the scripture as well. I remind you what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 17. He's speaking of Jesus. He's foretelling about Jesus. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Picture Jesus with a winnowing fork. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn in unquenchable fire. Fire. So you see Satan throws us out on these, uh, you know, in the evil circumstances of life and it beats on us. And, but then Jesus comes along with his winnowing fork and he separates those things out. It's really interesting analogy here that Jesus is using with Peter and we see it throughout the scripture. Perhaps you feel like you're being beaten and winnowed, <laughs> thrown into the air. But all of this is sometimes part of a process where God is, elim- he, he will ruthlessly eliminate sin from our lives. He will pursue us. He will challenge us. He will, he will allow all kinds of pain in our lives in order to get sin out of our lives. He doesn't want the chaff. He wants to burn the chaff, the sin, the ungodly things in an unquenchable fire. He wants to get them out of our lives and get us in a healthy place where we're usable by God. So Satan asked to beat down Peter and the other apostles. And indeed he did. Bad things do happen to good people, don't they? I was talking to my children this week. Hey, what should I preach about this week? Don't ask your kids that. Like if you ever, ever in my position, don't ask your kids what to preach. They come up with the hardest possible questions. Dad, you should preach about why bad things happen to good people. Like nobody really knows why. No one can explain that. Philosophers have been arguing about this for thousands of years. But we do have some indications in the scripture about why do bad things happen? Why was Satan able to have that kind of authority? Because of sin? Well, that's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? I was walking down the hallway between our bedroom and and the living room. And, you know, sometimes God speaks to me like this. And I just felt the Holy Spirit go, go get that C.S. Lewis book, Problem of pain off your shelf and go to page 56. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That's exactly what happened. I've never read the book. It's in my stack of 400 books that I still need to read. I'm like, okay, you know, what, the problem with pain, so maybe C.S. Lewis is dealing with this issue. Turn to page 56. That's exactly what I did. And right at that point in the book, Lewis is telling a story like this. How we tend to go, it's not fair that we suffer. It's not fair that there's pain. It's not fair that Satan has authority in our lives. It's not fair that God made us with the capability to sin. And then we start, and then he gets into a conversation where he, he tells a story. It's kind of like this. I mean, if you went to a university and you're getting ready to take some exams and you're going through the process and everybody in your class flunks the exam. What's your conclusion? The exam was too hard. My professors weren't good enough. Whoever put this in place did it wrong. But then you get outside of your university and find out that all the other universities passed at 90%. You ever been in, we get in these situations in life. Maybe you grew up in a family, I don't want to dig up too much pain here, but if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family and you start to come out of that, and you start to see healthy, functional families, all of your paradigms change. You're like, wait a minute, I thought life was like this. I thought it was okay to be 
an addict. I thought it was okay to be abusive. Those were just normal things that I grew up with. And then I get out of, get out of that situation and look around and go, wait, there's a lot better stuff out there. Well, our life can be like that. And Lewis talks about it in those terms. And I want to read something to you. This can be a little bit challenging to follow. So if, I, if it's a little bit too much, just have some grace for me. He says this, It is wise to face the possibility that the whole human race, being a small thing in the universe, is in fact just such a local pocket of evil. He describes all of mankind just like that little university. Just because within that little university everybody failed and so they think the system's rigged doesn't mean that's the actuality of the situation. We're kind of talking about relativism here. How how many of you know times have changed? Haven't they? (laughs) Come on. Wow. So what was relatively true 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I was a kid is very, very different than what my children are growing up with, relatively speaking. What was acceptable, what was good, what was right has changed. Some for better, some for worse. And so we tend to evaluate the world around us based on what is relative. Well, I'm good compared to so-and-so. Or I'm good compared to this. Or I've done better than that person. There's stories in the Bible about this. How about one where two guys are in the temple? Jason Harris, our community life pastor, brought this up in devotional recently in our staff meeting. Two guys go to the temple, and one stands in the back, a tax collector, and all he does is he beats his breast, whatever that is. I don't know, I've never really done that. And he says, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And in the front of the temple stands a Pharisee, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I give a tenth of everything I have, and I thank you I'm not like that guy back there. He's judging relatively. But God, who's really justified in that situation? God is, he's so much more. When we graduate from this life, we're going we're gonna to look at it and go, man, it's so different than what I thought. Just like when you were a little kid, life's so much different than what you thought. Or when you get out of a dysfunctional situation, life can be so much better than I thought. There's, there's so much relativism in the world driving our thinking and our evaluation about what good and evil is, about what right and wrong are. We can be like a child who doesn't understand the necessity of their education. Why do I have to go to school? I'm never going to use that. But the parent understands a bigger picture. Well, I'm doing better than so-and-so. It doesn't matter how so-and-so is doing. What really is the overarching truth, the overall reality? So we live in a world today, and we're combating it all the time. Times have changed. So sexuality outside of marriage has become very acceptable and commonplace. And the argument I get from most young people is that Times have changed. That's tradition. It's old-fashioned. Sorry. That's not, relativism isn't going to be your judge. God will be your judge. It's God's design, not, not the United States' design. It's not our culture's design. And so we see this continued trajectory of things relatively changing. We can't evaluate based on that. We've got to go beyond that. We've got to resist sin. We've got to resist it becoming a part of our lives. We've got to evaluate accordingly because that's where we give footholds. Anyway, I need to move on. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. (laughs) How many of you would like Jesus to pray for you? 
Well, he does. Did you know that? I keep losing my spot here in the Bible. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He doesn't say, I'm going to let you out of it. I'm going to get you off the hook. I'm going to make life easy for you. The Bible doesn't promise us easy life at all. It's one of the interesting things about Christianity. Yeah, come be a Christian. You're going to suffer. <laughs> Great, sign me up. That's why we have to have faith. Because we believe in something greater, something more, something beyond. We believe in more. Peter said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows what's about to happen. What's about to happen? Peter's about to deny Jesus. He says to Jesus, or Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Again, he's expecting a revolt. He's expecting an establishment of a political entity, a governance. These are the ways that they're thinking about the situation. I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to prison for this cause. And Jesus says, by morning, you'll have denied me three times when the rooster crows. And What? You think you're going to go to prison and death? It won't even be dawn and you'll have denied me three times. Of course, most of us know the story. Jesus gets arrested. Peter's kind of hanging out in the peripheral trying to keep an eye on things. And people are saying, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Not me. I don't do that, Jesus. That stuff's weird. I'm spiritual, not religious. We do this thing where we deny faith. But Jesus says, when you have returned. I wonder, if we take inventory of our lives, is there a need to return? Have I walked away from God? Have I walked away from his purposes? Have I denied his call on my life? Am I denying what the Holy Spirit is leading me or prompting me to do? Do I need to return to him? Jesus said, when you return. Maybe somebody somebody in here needs to hear that today. When you return. What does that indicate? Jesus is waiting. There's a return coming for some. We see a story in the Bible of the prodigal son. Maybe it doesn't apply to anybody in this room. But it's really, even if it doesn't, it's good for you when you go out into the world to realize that Jesus is waiting for some to return to him. When you return, strengthen your brothers. I want to just tell you the rest of the story that takes place in, I believe it's John chapter 21. Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, he's been appearing to his disciples. At chapter 21 of verse John, uh, chapter 21 of John. Peter is denied Jesus, Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected. And Peter just says, all right, I'm going fishing. Here we are to the fishermen again. How does this apply to our lives? Sometimes we do this, we're like, I did the Jesus thing, I'm just going to go back and live my own way. I accepted Jesus into my heart, but I'm just going to keep being my own God. I'm going to keep living my own way. Keep entertaining the same things, going back into the same life. Now, I don't know what Peter's motivation was to go fishing. I mean, if I were in Peter's shoes, the whole Jesus thing is coming to an end. I don't know what to do. He died and is resurrected, but he's only appeared a couple times. I'm going fishing. That's what I would do. I don't know what to do. I'm going fishing. And that's the other, there's six other disciples that go, we're going with you. And so they go fishing, and they're out on the sea, and they're fishing. And someone hollers from the shore, children, do you have any fish? And they holler back, no. 
And he goes, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Who is this guy standing on the shore hollering at us? Well, we're, we're the fishermen. Well, they cast their nets in and they have a great catch of fish. They can't even get it in the boat. And John leans over to Peter and goes, it's the Lord. Peter's like, what? Throws on his, throws on his clothes, which doesn't make sense to me. Jumps in the water out of the boat. You know, he's stripped down to fish. He puts on his outer garment. He jumps in the water and he swims towards the shore. They're only about 100 yards from shore. Jesus, uh, Peter has denied Jesus. He's walked away. But he, he must be hurting. He must be, there, there's something inside of him driving him. And when he realizes it's Jesus, he goes, I'm not going to miss this moment. I'm not going to miss this opportunity that I've just gotten to go talk to him. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims to the shore. And Jesus has food there for him. And, and then we, we get into the story of Jesus reinstating P- Peter. And you know, how he, you know how Jesus reinstates Peter? I tell you, some of us would do this. Peter, you're such an idiot. Peter, you're a liar. Peter, you failed. That's not what Jesus says to Peter at all. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he was grieved. Peter's grieved that Jesus keeps asking him. Feed my sheep. See, some of us need to return to Jesus. And we're returning to the one just going, do you love me? Do you want to be with me? Will you accept what I've done with you? Will you walk with me? Will you let me be in the driver's seat of your life? Not, you're an idiot, you're a liar, you screwed up, you failed, now you're less, now you won't sit on that throne someday, Peter. No, Jesus told him, clear back when, even before it happened, when you return, strengthen your brothers. Here's the last thing, a point I want to make. There are people out there, and maybe people in this room, who need to return to Jesus. And they need, they need to be forgiven. They need to find that love and acceptance again. But here's the thing. We need them. Strengthen your brothers. They needed Peter. Peter went on to be a force in the extension of the gospel in the world. They needed him. When you return, strengthen your brothers. Some of us need your strengthening. Some of us need your input. We need your gift. Remember that net. We looked at that fishing net just a few weeks ago. Some of you are missing in the net. There are people out there in this community, they're they're part of the net, they're part of the connection, and they're missing, and so there's a hole in our net. And we can't quite do everything we want to do because we need to get that activated. I wonder this morning if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart, I need to return to Jesus. I need to be like Peter and recognize my opportunity and jump into this water and swim right for him. If I have any members of the prayer team here this morning, would you just come up here to the front, please? Here's the deal. I tell you every week, come visit with our prayer team over here after the service if you want to pray. But I want to just push a little harder today. Just a little bit harder. 
See, when we respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we feel God going, I want you to receive prayer. I want you to return to me in a greater way. Maybe you haven't been that far away. But maybe you just need to latch on to God more closely. It takes faith to respond. You know, in some, in some churches we, we raise our hands. In other places we just stand right where you're at to respond to God. Because we take a step of faith. Because if I close the service and you head out these doors because you, it's too uncomfortable to respond. But I want to challenge you this morning. God honors when we take a step of faith. No matter who's watching or who's in the room. When he's tugging on our hearts that we take that step forward and action. Faith is belief and action. And so this morning, I, I just, these are nice people. They're not very scary. They want to pray with you today. Respond to God. If the, whatever it is in the word, maybe it's the points I made, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just something else God's working on in your life. Respond to him today. When I close this message, get up out of your seat and get down here and receive some prayer and bring yourself into alignment with God. We'd love to do that. No judgment. No judgment here. Shoot, I might need to respond to the message today. You know, that, that's the way it is. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for, <laughs> thank you for Peter. Thank you for just such a real, authentic man who was just a man who you called to be a part of your kingdom and to serve. It just, it's so comforting to us because we're just knuckleheads too. We make mistakes too. We've denied you. We rebel against you. We go against what you want us to do. We run away sometimes. And we, we feel like when we come back, we deserve to be punished and that you should call us an idiot and a liar. But you don't. You want to love us and you want us to love you. And you have things for us to do. I'm so thankful for that. That life has purpose. That I have purpose. And that every single person in this room has purpose in your kingdom. Gifting, calling, ability. Father, I pray whatever hearts you're ministering to this morning, I pray that they would respond fully to you today. That they'd be like Peter. What an outrageous thing for him to do. Jump out of the boat with all his clothes on and swim to shore. Probably didn't even check his pockets for his phone. That's how urgent it was to him. I pray it would be that urgent in people's hearts. And out in this community, when we're ministering to others, when we're visiting with our friends, when we're, when we're trying to reach the hearts of other people, Lord, that you would be behind the scenes working in urgency there. Lord, that there would be open doors to see people come to you. Lord, that you would give us words and wisdom to lead people to your throne room, to your feet, where they could accept you as the God of their lives, as their Lord. God, I thank you for this community and group of people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.